Psalm 15. The text is also in the bulletin on the next page. <clears throat> in, uh, in college, we were required at uh, George Fox in Newburgh to attend chapel twice a week. Uh, my friends and I, uh, after I became a Christian anyway, uh, my friends and I usually sat in the front row of the auditorium. To be honest, it felt kind of like extra credit spiritually. Um, to sit in the front row, it gets you the best religious experience. You don't have the distractions of other people uh, sitting in front of you, and you get to imagine everyone behind you admiring you as you sing really passionately and lift up your hands and get really serious about the worship. <clears throat> I remember one morning uh, <clears throat> going to chapel. Uh, within just a year or two of becoming a Christian, walking down to the front early, because it's important to get there early, and sitting next to one of my friends who had gotten there even earlier, and uh, I said hi to him. But he was just sitting there with his eyes closed. I thought maybe he was just resting and didn't hear me, so I patted him on the shoulder and said hi again, more, uh, more loudly this time. And he opened his eyes and he swiveled his head toward me and with a baleful look of reproach on his face, he said viciously, can't you see that I'm praying? Okay. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> that interaction stuck in my head in large part because he made me feel like I did something really wrong. Interrupting his sweet communion with God like that. And I, <clears throat> I hate feeling like I've done something wrong, so the, sh the shame has stuck with me for years and years. But the memory also stuck with me uh, because I've had the nagging feeling that actually my friend was wrong to snap at me like that. It was wrong for him to do that. It was, it was wrong to view me as a distraction from his prayerful life with God. It was wrong to see me as an unpleasant interruption to his worship, to his communion with God. My friend basically thought that religious worship was one thing, and that was what he was doing before I showed up and so rudely interrupted him. And having to acknowledge another human being, well, that was another thing entirely. I had to stop doing the one thing in order to do the other. There are a whole host of ways that we distort religion, we distort true worship, and this uh, short psalm, Psalm 15, is a wonderful corrective to that. So that's what we'll talk about this morning, true worship, what it, what it means to be the true worshiper. So let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we pray for your help as we read your word, as we hear it, as we consider it, pray for your spirit's help in Jesus' name. Amen. A Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, 
and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this psalm is uh, sort of like a catechism question and answer. It's actually a little bit shorter than uh, some of the Westminster question and answers, uh, this, this Psalm 15. The, uh, the psalmist, David, he's the king of Israel. And the, the relationship that that means, we heard in Psalm 2, uh, back toward the beginning of the, the Psalms, the relationship is that he's God's son. The king of Israel is God's son. And he asks the question of, uh, of this God with whom he has a close personal relationship, that he knows personally, he says, O Lord, O Yahweh, the one who's revealed himself to his people. Uh, This is his special name. It's his actual name, Yahweh. O Lord, O Yahweh, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And the rest of the psalm then, uh, that was the question. The rest of the psalm is like God's answer to the question. Uh, Maybe not a comprehensive answer, but it's an answer and you start to get the idea. There's a lot of biblical meaning packed into just the question itself. Just the question in verse 1 is a question shaped by knowledge of the Scriptures. It isn't just some generic religious question that a shaman or a witch doctor or a Wiccan would ask about how to be spiritual in some abstract way. It's Israel's question. It's the question of a biblical Jew or a biblical Christian It's a question addressed to the God who's revealed in our scriptures, in our Bible, about what it looks like for a human being to live in communion with God, with Yahweh. The tent that's talked about here is the, the tent of meeting. It's the holy tabernacle. It's been designed by God himself to be a picture of heaven on earth. That's been made explicit in the scriptures. God intended it to be the place where he would meet with his people. And he gave very specific instructions about it to Moses and to Israel. You start to see those instructions in Exodus chapter 25 for the next several chapters. Uh, You see how this tabernacle would be constructed and how people would come for worship. This is all according to God's design and God's revelation. He's the one who tells us what it looks like when we come into his presence this place, this tent of meeting. So the tent, and after it, the temple on Zion in Jerusalem, the temple, that permanent structure that Solomon built at first. It's in Zion. It's the holy hill. It's the city of God's people. And that's the place in the Old Testament where the glory of God dwelt in the midst of his people for fellowship and relationship and communion. And that's the main point of the place. That's the main point of the place. It's to be with God. Who's going to dwell in your tent and on your holy hill? The question is, who, who's going to be with you? Right? It's not just who may visit occasionally, but what sort of person dwells, remains, abides, stays, makes home in God's presence in the place where God is gloriously present with His people. In other words... Who is the truly spiritual person? Or what does living with God make a person like? Or who is the true worshiper? What is that person like? And the answer to this question 
it takes up the bulk of the psalm, is also shaped by a larger understanding of the whole Bible, all the scriptures. Uh, like I said, it's not comprehensive. You've got to go to the other scriptures to make sense, really, of what's happening right here in this psalm. Uh, but it, it is uh, shaped by a larger understanding of God's special revelation, the things he's made explicit, the things he's made known about what it means to have a relationship with him. So it isn't just some generic religious answer to the question that a shaman or a witch doctor or a Wiccan or a priest from any other religion would be able to give about what it means to be good or spiritual or okay. <clears throat> every sinful human being in every culture has his or her own ideas about that, about what it, what it would be like to answer that question. Who's the true worshiper? What's their life look like? What does is, what is living with God make your life like? Everybody has an answer to that question. For example, the Pharisees in Jesus' day had a conception of true religion, true worship. They thought that, for example, when you got home from market after a lot of social contact with people, you couldn't be sure if they were ritually clean or not, that you should wash away your impurities with water to remain ritually and spiritually pure. They thought that you could be right by tithing everything carefully, carefully tithing everything, even down to giving 10% of the spices on their herb racks. They thought that if their lives were interrupted by other people who weren't doing it right, then they would scold and shun and reject those people. They're not doing it right. <clears throat> That's what it meant to be religious. Apparently for them, for the Pharisees in Jesus' day, that's what the true worshiper does. What do you think that it means to be truly religious or to truly worship? What do you think constitutes the best religious experience? Sometimes it's hard to be honest with ourselves about what, what I think constitutes the best religious experience or the way that my life should be shaped fundamentally. If I'm going to be in God's presence, is it participation in rituals? Is it impressing others with your zeal? Is that what the true worshiper is and does? Is it knowing all the right doctrines? Is it maybe memorizing even the catechism with all its lengthy questions and answers? Is it taking really serious vows? Maybe even monastic vows like poverty and silence. Is that really religious? Is that what the true worshiper would do? Sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and, and live that way in a vow of poverty? Does true worship mean just being lost in impassioned singing? Is that true worship? Or earnest, private devotion regularly at, at, at a really early hour in the morning? before the world is up and stirring. Is that true worship? Is it tuning out the people around you? Maybe walking off into the forest to get away from the distractions of society and meeting God there, meditating in solitude until you have a mystical experience of God, just you and God? Is that true worship? Is that somewhere in the back of your mind as a conception of what true worship looks like? What, what your life would look like if you were the true worshiper? 
according to the scriptures, the true worshiper doesn't engage in religion or religious activities as if it were just between God and me. That's, that's clear from our passage. The true worshiper enfolds others into his life with God. His life with God means life with others. Who is the true worshiper who lives with God? Yes, the first part of the answer, you see in verse 2, it's comprehensive and it's holistic. It says he walks blamelessly and he does what is right, righteousness and justice. That's what that means. And he speaks truth in his heart. It's comprehensive and holistic, but it isn't generic. It isn't just being a good person, virtuous and moral and upright, and having integrity. It isn't generic. The answer has an explicitly biblical shape. The true worshiper who lives with God, lives in God's presence, has his home there. The true worshiper uh, leads a blameless, righteous life of integrity in God's presence. But that it's a life of transparency to God, to the light of God's presence. It's a life that's resonant with the character of God. It's a life attentive to the God who has welcomed him to live in his presence. And what that life looks like, that good and pure and righteous life, what it looks like, specifically and practically, is love for others. That's what it looks like. That's what real worship looks like. Love for others. Multifaceted love for others, reflecting God's love in various ways. Verse 3, the true worshiper doesn't slander others. It's kind of putting it negatively. You assume that means he speaks well of others. He protects the welfare of others. He protects the reputation of others. He does no evil to others and so forth. Right? And these are the attributes of love. These are relational characteristics. This is life lived out with other human beings. That's what's happening here. And these are not these, these other human beings and your life with them. There's not interruptions to living in God's presence. They're not distractions from living with God, and they're certainly not merely hoops to be jumped through so that you can get into God's presence, maybe leave them behind because you've treated them well enough to be acceptable to God, and now you're in. This is what it looks like to live in God's presence. This is what the true worshiper is doing in his worship. Loving others is precisely the actual expression of of his life with God, the true worshiper's life with God as true worship. So, you go home and read uh, 1 Corinthians 13. It's the, the great chapter on love. Read 1 Corinthians 13. It falls right smack in the middle of chapters 11 through 14, which is Paul's treatise on worship. Corporate worship. 11 through 14, and 13 is on love. So go home and read that section. 1 Corinthians 13, the beginning of it, says, <clears throat> If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, talk about like a religious experience. If I have prophetic powers, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, these are all things that he's talking about in the context of corporate worship, the religious experience. If I have all faith as to remove mountains, if I, just, if I give away all that I have, generosity, 
If I deliver up my body to be burned, ultimate devotion. This is super spiritual religious stuff. But have not love, I'm nothing. Nothing. Not just a little bit of something. Nothing. So the essence of the true worshiper's life with God, the essence of the true worshiper's religion, is love for others. It's the essence of it. Others aren't meant to compete with God for your attention. Like, if you're praying and you don't want to be disturbed, and you stiff-arm your friend who comes because he's an interruption, right? Others aren't meant to compete with God for your attention. You're meant to give yourself to others because you're attentive to God. <clears throat> you don't sacrifice others in order to worship God have a religious experience. Your worship is meant to be your life sacrificed for others. I had another friend uh, recently tell me that uh, he's, he's pretty excited about a new church that he's found to go to where there is a, a robust, vibrant, deep, historical, meaningful liturgy. The worship service, Sunday mornings. So excited to have found a good place to go. But when it's over, he doesn't really want to talk to others in the church after their worship because they just talk about the problems. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't come to hear about their problems. He just wants the liturgy. For the true worshiper, love is liturgy. Relationship with others is the order of service. One's life poured out for others, it is the life lived with God. These are the movements of worship. These are the rituals, if you will, of worship. <clears throat> this is why Jesus connected the two greatest commandments the way that he did. It says in Matthew 22, <clears throat> You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. That's worship. That's, this is what the true worshiper does. And a second is like it. It connects them. Second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So loving your neighbor as yourself is closely connected to loving, worshiping the one true God who reveals himself in Scripture because God himself is love. If you're living in a relationship with the God who's love, your life is going to look like that. God loves the other as he loves himself. And when you come to commune with this God, and when you dwell in his holy presence, then it makes you like him. So the true worshiper reflects God's character, and he loves others. Precisely because he is God-centered. Not as something that he has to put his God-centeredness on hold in order to go love other people. And he'll come back to the worship later. Precisely because he's God-centered, precisely because he's attentive to God, he reflects God's character and he loves other people. So verse 4, he admires what God admires, and he hates what God hates. And his heart aligns with God's heart. And he prays for what God wants. So he commits himself to the good of others. 
even when it costs him. Then in verse 5, he's generous and he lends and he expects nothing in return for the favor. He doesn't exploit others who are vulnerable. He doesn't look to get ahead through their suffering or through their loss. He doesn't pervert justice to his own advantage, make himself the center of his own universe. You compare the Ten Commandments. Compare the Ten Commandments given by God on Mount Sinai. The first four commandments are explicitly God-centered. They're explicitly centered on your relationship with God. Vertically, if you will. The last six commandments, so it's the majority of them, the Ten Commandments. The majority of them are about how you live in the horizontal human relationships based on the first four. So the true worshiper, in his worship, in his life with God, he lives for the good of others. He's a man for the community. He's not a man for himself. Precisely because he is in communion with this God, the triune God, who really is the epitome of love, he's the one who characterizes, these are, these are his characteristics. These characterize God first, these things that we read about in Psalm 15. And the psalm closes with the most astounding promise. It says, he who does these things shall never be moved. Uh, literally, it's he shall not be moved forever, for eternity. shall never be moved. Really? Really? Shall never be moved? Such a person who lives as this psalm describes so completely for other people, even to his own hurt. He'd suffer all kinds of losses. He'd suffer all kinds of hardships and setbacks in his life. He wouldn't be controlling the outcome of his life. He might be taken here or there. That's why it's called sacrifice. It's giving up something precious. It's losing something precious. The true worshiper's love could very well cost him his life. How can it be said, he shall never be moved? It means that he's going to have an eternal home with God. That's what it means. That he belongs in God's presence and nothing can exclude him from it. It's the answer to the original question, O oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who shall live in your glorious presence with you forever? And never be moved away from that. The one whose life with God means loving his neighbor as himself, whose communion with God means being a man for the community. That's who belongs in God's glorious presence forever and will never be excluded from it. So the question to you is, do you think that describes you? Do you, do you think you fit the bill here? Does this description of the true worshiper, is that about you? Is yours the perfect liturgy of love? Is your life lived with God a life that's poured out for others, even to your own hurt? All the scriptures say that that should be an easy question for us to answer. The answer is no. This doesn't describe me. This doesn't describe you. It doesn't describe anyone. 
In our sin, we don't belong in God's presence. In our sin, we're not reflecting his love in our relationships with one another. So it's a very bad fit. There's only one. There's only one true worshiper who walks blamelessly, who does justice, who with absolute integrity speaks all the truth that he's ever heard from God. There's only one true worshiper who never violated his relationship to God or to others, who loves what God loves and hates what God hates, whose life is in complete alignment with God. There's only one true worshiper who made a promise, who swore, who covenanted himself to us for our good, even when it cost him big, even when it cost his own life. There's only one true worshiper who's done all this. And the good news is that Jesus is the true worshiper, and he shares his life of worship with us. He opens it right up so that we can participate in it. First Timothy chapter 2 says, There's one mediator between God and men. There needs to be, or else we wouldn't be connected with God. We wouldn't live with God. We wouldn't be reconciled. We wouldn't have the hope of living with him forever in his glorious presence. But there is one. There's one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He gave himself. His liturgy... The liturgy of our mediator. His liturgy was love. And he didn't just live it for it for his own sake. He lived it on our behalf so that we could enter into it. So we could come to God in his name. Jesus belongs in heaven, in God's glorious presence. And he takes us along with him, even though we don't deserve it. He is the first fruits of a human life offered completely to God, the true, and and now, because he's alive from the dead, the everlasting worshiper. And because of his mercy and grace to us, we will join him one day, and our liturgy will be love. Forever, for eternity. Because Jesus shall never be moved, and God has given it to us to be found in the one who shall never be moved by faith, as we trust in him, then we shall never be moved either. No one can exclude Jesus from God's presence. Therefore, no one can exclude us from God's presence because of him, because of his grace. And that that isn't just a future thing that we're all looking forward to, our liturgy becoming the liturgy of love perfectly. It is future when it'll be perfect. But it isn't just a future thing. It's something for here and now because through our mediator, even now, we come into God's presence. We have his own spirit. We sojourn in God's tent. We dwell on his holy hill, even right now. That's what we're doing right now. Even now, the life of Christ with God, his relationship with God, the life of the true worshiper who loves others, perfectly as he loves himself, lays down his life for them, his life is ours. So J.B. Torrance said, um, I've quoted this several times, worship is the gift of participating through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. Jesus Christ, his communion with the Father, his being with the Father, we get to participate in that through the Holy Spirit by faith.
And that's what worship is. That's what our worship is. It's Christ's worship that we've entered into. And that means that even now, we can live as people, not just for ourselves, but for the community. We can give ourselves for the sake of others as we dwell with God. Paul's letter to the Ephesians makes a big deal about that. He uses all this same kind of language. The first part of it is all about how God has welcomed us into his tent. It's the temple in Ephesians. Same thing. The place where God's presence dwells with his people. We've been invited in. We've been reconciled to God and to one another in the temple that he's been building, especially through the sacrifice of his own son, how, in fact, God has already built us together as, corporately, the dwelling place for him by his spirit. And so what does temple life look like as we're engaging in this worship? That's the place where worship takes place, is the temple, and that's us. So what does that temple life look like? Well, it looks like the second half of the letter. For us, right now. People living in gentleness and patience toward one another, it says. Looks like people speaking the truth in love to one another. Looks like people created anew after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. People who have stopped stealing from one another, living self-centered at your expense, your hurt, and people who have started working, bearing burdens in order to be able to share with others who have needs. Living in the temple, place of God's worship in the name of Jesus Christ, it means people who offer forgiveness to one another. And that's like the costliest thing you could offer. It's people who live in the imitation of God, whose lives are transparent to the light of God's presence, whose lives resonate with God's own character as we interact with one another. We're attentive to God, and we live with God And it looks like our relationships with one another becoming relationships of love that looks like God's love. When we live attentive to him who has welcomed us in the church, we also will attend to each other in the church. So may our liturgy be love now and forever in the name of Jesus Christ, the true worshiper. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given your son to us and to live for us on our behalf, to present himself to you as the true worshiper. And we, we look at his life, we look at the things that we know about him, the things that he's done and the way that he's engaged with people, and the fact that he's always had his attention fixed on you, that every part of his life was true worship indeed. And we're thankful to be found in him because if we were found in and of ourselves, we would be lost. So we thank you that you've come to meet us in Jesus, that you've reconciled us to yourself in Jesus, that you've allowed us to participate in his life with you, his worship, his communion with you, and that uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ, you're changing us more and more into his image, and we get to um, live new lives now. We thank you for the way that you've called us into this place, your temple, the place where you meet with your people, that you've made us a part of it. And we pray that you'd help us to live um, as those who come in Christ's name, as those who are shaped by his love for us, um, shape our love for one another in the same way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.